Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. This is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. I'm back from Vitanord and I just wanted to share some thoughts about that really fun week last week that I had. I don't know if fun is the right word, but super informative. I, I'm going to be doing a lot of interviews with people I met there. Some fantastic uh, connections were made. I really think that, you know, the this is the place where innovation and the cutting edge of wine is happening because it's where people are experimenting, where people are breeding and thinking about breeding and addressing extremes. And we are increasingly living in a world uh, of extremes, specifically climatically. And that was made very clear by one of the first speakers on the first morning of the first day, who was a wine climatologist. And for those of you who don't work in the space of wine very often in, in terms of viticulture, anything like that, uh, or if you're just tuning into this podcast and haven't been listening to some of the speakers on here, I see these charts all the time. And, and I guess it, it just, you know, is something that I don't even question or, uh, you know, blink at anymore. But when you talk to somebody, any climatologist, anybody who tracks data over the last century, the graphs all look the same. And that's one big impression I have where it's sort of like, you know, numbers are bumping up and down, bumping around a sort of midline until you hit the 1980s. And then all the graphs just track up and it's just a, not a straight line up, but it's a straight angle heading north, heading up the graph um, to the present day. Every graph is like that. And, and when you see that from around the world, it's just undeniable the changes that are coming. Um, and, and this kind of conference, I think, is really important where we talk about how to do the things that we're doing in a, in a world where the extremes are getting more extreme. A really cool statistic that I heard right at the beginning of Vitanord was 50% of New World winemaking only uses seven varieties of grapes currently. And I'll just add, by the way, none of which are native to the new world. <laughs> so there is room for improvement if we are going to deal with the extremes of climate change. And I think that is a big message that I took away from this, which is, uh, you know, the science points to if there's a warmer climate, it holds more moisture, more moisture leads to more fungal pressure. And, and a direct quote from one of the speakers was, if you're in agriculture, you need to experiment because we need to be breeding for adaptation. We need to be breeding new varieties of grapes that deal with the pressures and the extremes that are already present and only heading up that chart. The chart is just going up. So, you know, one of the other impressions that I had was the crazy extent to which we continue to go to grow vines that don't belong where they're being grown. So now in northern climates, they're growing grapes under geotextiles, which are like, it's essentially like, every row of the vineyard has its own little mini greenhouse that they go to bed under every winter rather than just growing a whole vineyard of vines that are adapted to cold climates um, we've actually now created this massive input of geotextiles <laughs> into the vineyard system that's just one example um, of that and then you know that's one of those things that made me a little like dismayed but then there's a lot of great examples and and the hopeful thing is if you haven't been tasting hybrids, um, Wendy and I just judged a competition where I, a wine competition that was here, based here in North America, you know, any, anybody in the U.S. could submit 
or anywhere anybody in North America could submit. And I actually got to judge the hybrid panel. And the quality of the wines there were incredible. That was literally just a couple weeks before Vidinord. And then at Vidinord, literally everything I tasted, other than the wines that I brought from California, um, were made with hybrids. And the quality was phenomenal. Like it is just absurd that we would even need to think of a separate category for hybrids at this point. Like there should just be wine competitions. There shouldn't be some separate hybrid versus vinifera category. It's just unnecessary. The quality is ridiculously high and getting better all the time. There are fantastic grapes that are just, that will just blow your mind. And, and please experiment because there's so much good stuff out there. One other really cool example of something that I found, I, you've, if you've been listening to this podcast, you've heard me harp on or maybe rant about the need to get away from a, a wine industry that's based on variety of grape that we only understand and we only label wine based on varietal characteristics and varietal understandings. And I finally now have a great example of somebody that's doing that. Uh, and it's Nova Scotia. And in Nova Scotia, they have an incredible extreme terroir where they have these crazy tides that literally there's a 50 foot difference between high and low tide. So it creates a bellows effect where as the tides go in and come out, they're creating this literally like a bellows effect for the land where it's sucking in air, pushing in air, sucking out air, pushing in air. And so you have these very distinctive terroir and they decided 14 different wineries decided to get together and create a regional identity and a regional brand that they call Tidal Bay and Tidal Bay does not matter what varieties you grow but it is a style of wine it's a white fresh aromatic crisp and uh you know lovely lively white wine which of course pairs really well with the the seafood that is there in Nova Scotia because you're surrounded by the ocean and every year the members of this have to submit their wine of this style to a judging panel and they have to get approved to meet the quality to carry that label, the Title Bay label that year. So it's actually, and you actually have to do this every year and you could potentially not get approved even if you're one of the members of this conglomeration. So it's this very cool thing where the, you know as a consumer, if you get Title Bay, you will have a specific style and a quality level that has been judged and been met to get into, to be able to make a Title Bay wine that year. So it's a really exciting regional thing that I think everybody should check out, at least as a model to look at what they're doing and how it's working. And one of the cool things uh, that one of the speakers from Title Bay said, which again, just echoes what I've already mentioned, which is their, their slogan is, when 80% of the wine in the world is made from the same 20 grapes, do something different. So I think that's what I took away from Vidinord and I think is a, a, a theme for that whole thing as well and was really valuable, really valuable stuff that I hope to share more of the speakers coming up soon. My guest for this episode is Max Pascal. Max is a really interesting guy in that he's not specifically a wine guy, although he is growing a experimental vineyard in his yard in Philadelphia. And he is owns a small parcel of a few acres in the Poconos, where he is, uh, which he has titled 
Shelterwood Forest Farm. And he has a website for Shelterwood Forest Farm on which he has a blog. And this is how I found Max. Um, Max wrote an article called The Lost Forest Gardens of Europe. And in it, it talks about promiscuous viticulture, promiscuous agriculture, the idea of these ancient traditions of polyculture, perennial polyculture systems that really covered all of Europe at one time for thousands and thousands of years and to a certain extent still exist in small pockets. Of course, some of that polyculture involved vines and making wine, and so that's where I stumbled upon it and wanted to talk to Max, and as it turned out, he just has a ton of amazing things to say. He's a certified arborist and is uh, just a really smart guy with a science background who is looking at these questions and wants to talk about the stories that sometimes have been marginalized by conventional farming and or often have been marginalized by conventional farming and pushed out and and he wants to revive them because the ideas embedded in these systems embedded in understanding why they were done and how they were done really reveals an amazing way forward an amazing amount of solutions to the problems that we're facing so in this he talks about the assisted migration of species in reaction to climate change to assist the movement of things that might have grown 500 miles south of where we are currently to here so that we are helping them prepare for the future which tends to look like we're going to have to have the same climate of the things that are 500 miles south of us pretty soon um, we talk about the spirit of plants and communication and intent in terms of what they're doing and and how we maybe can communicate with them or listen to them better and we talk about a book called what a plant knows and a book called arboretum america we talk about his article the lost forest gardens of europe and this episode is actually a really fantastic companion episode to the mark shepherd episode if you haven't listened to that i highly recommend it's just a couple episodes ago you'll find it and we also talk about the Temple of Diana. We talk about Provenage and the layering. Provenage is layering. It's a different name for layering. And layering, if you don't know, you'll learn about what that means and how it's used to create a vineyard superorganism. And, of course, we talk about growing vines and trees. Uh, this is really a philosophical, information-rich, uh, deeply researched thing, much like Max's article where we cover so many ideas i don't even know how to begin it's just a fun great conversation with a smart guy and i'm really grateful for max for doing it. i hope you enjoyed as much as i did if you enjoy this podcast please support by subscribing to our patreon channel which i'll link to in the show notes and also giving a great review and subscribing on whatever podcast app you're on thank you so much and enjoy Max, welcome. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. <laughs> Appreciate you coming on and, and being willing to, to talk about some of this research that you've done. But, but before we get into that, I would love to just hear, where are you in the world and, and what do you do generally? Yeah, yeah so thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Max Paschal. Uh, I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm a professional gardener and arborist. And uh, in my free time, I have a blog at uh, shelterwoodforestfarm.com, uh, where I just like to write about um, 
weird historical agroforestry topics, um, ecological restoration, and uh, you know sometimes things about uh, assisted migration of native species uh, in anticipation of climate change. Oh, I like, I really like that. I mean, I, I, I would imagine you are, you, you must think that there's a good case for a lot of assisted migration of species happening right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, (laughs) I think, you know, you have to be really careful about it, obviously. But um, Mm. in the past few years, there's been um, a really growing scientific consensus around uh, the necessity for it. Um, Essentially, obviously, we don't want to be rearranging species wholesale, you know, across the planet, like we've seen what what happens when you do that. Um, But if you do it responsibly, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for uh, for moving a native species that's you know maybe 500 miles to the south of here, and moving up here uh, just to yeah. see, not to see, but to uh, essentially prepare the environment here for for what things uh, are projected to be like in the next hundred years. Right, right. So maybe, it's, and you have a little you have a little piece of land outside of Philly, if that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I mean. We, are you growing coffee and cacao then there? <laughs> no, <laughs> in not, preparation. Not <laughs> <laughs> no, I but I actually did plant uh, like a pomegranate and uh, that that's surviving pretty well and lots of bald cypress and uh, oh black gum, really? uh pawpaws, persimmons, like things that shouldn't that haven't historically grown in the Pocono Mounds of Pennsylvania, at least in the past right. uh, forty thousand years, but um, but they actually thrived in that area. Um, you know, forty thousand years ago, when when the uh, the temperature here was just one degree higher than today, uh, wow. so in a sense they were native here um, at a point. Right, right. The climate's going was a little bit more what it's going to be like in the future. They just headed south. They just uh, took a trip with the with the temperature down toward the equator. Yeah, exactly. Do you see? I, I'm guessing you've read the book, The Overstory. I haven't actually. I've been meaning to. Oh, I, yeah. I really. Hope <laughs> I'm <do>. so sorry. <laughs> Dang it. Well, I'm a frog. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, this is the end. I'm just going to hit stop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I, I, I mean it does. It's, it's kind of irrelevant because I'm just curious if you, if do you have a sense? I, okay, the reason I brought it up is because you know he, the author, anthropomorphizes trees i mean to a to the extent that they're a character you know the trees are you know these character multiple characters and then they're sort of bigger characters and the overstory takes on this very cool meaning of course because of that um about this story that transcends the human drama you know a story that is much bigger in scale of time and in scope of you know whatever just like you know these in, in scope of size as well because it's it's a story that spans ecosystems and regions and continents. And, and, and I'm wondering if you, you know, not having read that, if you have thought about these ideas of this, you know, when I say that the, you know, these pawpaws and things that once were there 40,000 years ago, and I know pawpaws are, are still there. I mean, I know they're growing up in the Finger Lakes region too, but um, these other species that have not been there for a long time and moved South, do you see them having that kind of, actual uh what's the word i'm looking for sort of what is the word i'm looking for intent and awareness and i don't know spirit life (laughs) um to 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 be 
acting with purpose in what they're doing? Or do you, I mean, how do you see plants? I mean, you clearly are, you know, somebody who works with them professionally. And I'm just curious, does, does it transcend that? Do you, are you a hardcore, you know, sort of deductive scientist um, or, or what? I don't know. That's a pretty broad question, but feel free to approach that any way you want. Yeah, no, it's, it's a really great question. Um, I, I don't know, I've, I've worked for a very long time with trees, just pruning them, growing them, climbing in them, um, you know, and, and lots of plants too. And I, I think there's, you know, the, my personal spiritual belief side. Um, and then there's, you know, the side that I bring to work every day. So, you know, I'm not going into work and, uh, talking to like the trees necessarily, but in my backyard, you know, I, I do sometimes, um, Mm -hmm. I think just in what I've seen and experienced, I think there's a lot more, uh, just going on, uh, with plants than, than we can really, uh, perceive. And, you know, there's been a lot of science recently coming out about that, um, particularly around, see, like the root systems, the mycorrhizae, um, and the connections and the way that trees can communicate with each other. Um, I, I think for things like this, I tend to, um, try not to, I personally, I don't have like a, a very strong conviction one way or the other, but I just usually tend to defer to people, uh, into communities that have a much broader experience with this than I do. So, um, so, you know, in here in North America, if, if native people and indigenous people, you know, when they talk about, um, and not just here, but all over the world, all, all kinds of indigenous folks, um, have these cosmologies where they talk about, um, the, uh, the spirits that exist in trees and, and rocks and rivers and things like that. Um, I'm not, I'm not here to discount any of that. Um, so I think, and I, I personally have gotten a lot of value out of, um, I think just seeing the, the trees in, in my garden and, or the plants in my garden with, with that kind of lens, um, whether or not it's, it's real, I think it's for me, like the effect that it has on, on me as a, as someone who tends that garden, um, is, is really positive. Yeah. Have you read any Stephen Buhner? Uh, a you little know? bit. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm I'm nearing the end of his book, The Secret Teachings of Plants. Mm. I really am enjoying it. And Mm. of course, I'm not coming from a science-based, although I'm coming from a sort of, you know, I mean, personally, I'm not like a, that's not what I went to school for or anything was a hard science thing. Actually, my degree is in religion. So that can, that'll tell you a little bit about where I'm coming from. This um, storytelling and myth and, you know, definitely connection to spirit and things like that. Although I, you know, lost my own religion while studying religion if that tells you anything else but um it's the stephen stephen this book particularly really starts with what i would say is a way of leading the scientific mind into i guess understanding the edges of and limits of scientific understanding Mm. um, by talking about you know uh, like electromagnetism in plants and and bioelectricity in in all creatures and that there are you know these fields that are actually measurable and 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 then it you know essentially breaks down or or i would say builds up this understanding of all of these things that are super complex that are measurable but that are usually ignored when talking about these things and you know we we usually just reduce you know, discussions of plants and things like that to the biology, to the hard biology and chemistry that's happening. And, and he's, 
trying to show that there's these sort of, you know, even with within the science, there are these other things that have been largely unexplored relating to, you know, our, their similarity to us as creatures and in and just to being beings of energy beyond just beings of biology. And, you know, I think, I've, I mean, the argument ultimately is that there is a way to communicate with plants, um, you know, that plants may be talking to us and, and not in the way that we think of in words and things like that, but that there, there is like a communication aspect to that. I, obviously you haven't read it, so I can't ask you to, you know, comment on any of that, but do, have you, you know, you've, you've already answered the question, but I'm just curious if you had anything else to say in terms of talking to plants yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or if any of that you know sort of the 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 stuff that is beyond what we think we know and then there's a lot more to know kind of idea is have have you encountered that or yeah, yeah. i think I mean, there's um there's three I'm other happy books. for pushback please if you oh no, no no i i uh there's actually three books that i've read that have really influenced um i guess my my understanding or or, or my my views on this uh one is um uh, what a plant knows by Daniel Chamovitz. It's uh, it's kind of like it sounds a little bit like what what you're describing, but it's going at it from a psycholo- sorry from a scientific perspective. Um, so the book goes into mm. um, like some of those areas that you know that we mentioned earlier about how you know science is starting to catch up with this and and see the, all the different ways that plants kind of perceive the world around them, even without having necessarily like a central nervous system or, or a brain. Right. Um, and how even like things like color can be perceived through their leaves and that they, they react right. in accordance with that. Um, so from like a purely scientific perspective, I think that's an excellent book that kind of opens up, uh, or for me, it opened up my understanding of, of the complexity of, of lives, like the complexity that, that plants have in, in their day-to-day life. Um, another book was uh, Arboretum America, um, and I don't know if you've read that one, but it's, it's uh, yeah. one of those books that, uh, that really, that I found people who know nothing about trees and people who have worked with trees for 40 years, they both love it as much. Like it is, is one of those books that is really, oh, wow. really wonderful. Okay. Uh, it's by this, um, Irish Canadian writer, uh, Diana Beresford Kroger. Um, and that goes through a lot of trees that are native to, uh, the Northeast here and, uh, looking at. Um, not just like their biology and their relation to their environment, but also uh, their cultural significance and their historical place within uh, the lives and cosmologies of uh, different native groups here Um, and medicinal uh, aspects to them as well. So that's a really great one. Um, Hmm. And then of course, like the third book uh, is uh, braiding sweetgrass. Uh, oh, which yeah, of course, yeah. is a huge favorite for a lot of people for very good reason. Uh, and so that that's helped me really, um, I think, just see a, a, a more mature perspective um, on on this kind of question. So I've yeah. I've uh, I really appreciated uh, those books and influences because, you know, I'm not somebody who um, uh, has like a deep spiritual perceptions of anything you know i was uh <laughs> i was raised in in a fairly atheist household and uh, um so you know when i talk to trees when i leave them offerings you know i don't necessarily hear anything back but um it's uh it's a practice that i keep up and that i enjoy and um yeah. Yeah, and like i said i think it if nothing else it helps me change or rewire the way that that i that i perceive them um because it, it's very easy just to 
lose sight of plants and just see them as, as furniture in the background. But uh, once you see them, and once you keep up the practice of seeing them as these vibrant, uh, complex beings, you know, I think that that really starts to open up uh, different ways of approaching them. That's a that's a really yeah. You brought up some really beautiful things. I, I mean, I mean, for me, I, I was I was raised in the opposite of an atheist household, <laughs> and but I think and then having you know become an atheist at some you know and and then I I, I don't even like the term atheist because it's like a reaction against something that you you know you know what I mean like it's like mm-hmm. you you're defining yourself as a not something as opposed to just being yourself you know what I mean as opposed to just being a human um not defined in relation to uh, this one specific idea you know um <clears throat> but I I love the idea that what I what I learned from that and is that this language that we use and and even our abil- our ability to understand language I, I was just listening to this is I think this was actually in Stephen Buhner's book, the 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 secret the secret teachings of plants. Um, is just you know our ability to understand language is is because or the, our our ability to use language is because of our ability to understand that there is meaning. Like you know the the words are are this surface thing floating on this ocean of meaning, and they all become you know language is just metaphor essentially, and and very you know obviously very surface metaphor because it, it, the meanings go much deeper um and and so things like where in biodynamics i'm trying to tie this into what we're talking about a little bit is like you know you're supposed to leave 10 percent of the farm wild because that's where you know generation happens that's where creativity happens in you know and wild in quotes whatever that means um you know i know it's a word that's fraught with a lot of um colonial ideas and things like that but you know a ten percent is this uh, this part of your farm that you just don't touch and you and you let it be without your intent and your and then you see what happens and sometimes the the most exciting part of your farm becomes that part and it's where new things happen it's where new you know where you learn it's where it's the most teaching part it's where you know generation comes from of new ideas and new new plants and new you know new varieties of the plants that you're trying to grow in the other 90% um, where they get planted by seed by birds or, you know, by animals pooping them out or whatever. And all of a sudden you have this new thing that you didn't intend and it's doing better than everything else that you did intend. And, and then I tie that into, you know, that 10% that is supposed to be given to God in, in a religious tradition as a tithe or whatever. And it's like, you, you could see it the same way. I mean, you know, you could, you could look at it in either thing that, that you could call that wild, you could call that nature, you could call that, the 10% that you're giving to God, but that's where this unintended thing happens, depending on what, you know, the metaphor is that you're using for it. Anyway, all that is to say these, this idea of meaning beneath that, you know, obviously this is one of those samples where you see the the meaning beneath the words and, and perhaps there is meaning, obviously these, everything becomes a metaphor at a certain point. If we're all a form of energy and these plants are a form of energy and why wouldn't we be able to understand and sort of communicate with that meaning in some way, like the meaning that is beneath our our thought word ideas and the and the meaning that is within the plants and their you know whatever it is that their <laughs> their form of communication um, really just overlays a deeper connection in in this ocean of meaning beneath the surface. Um, I don't know. So you you brought that up. That was just a thought I had, and feel free to react to that or not. Um, 
I love the books that you recommended. And I think Robin Wall Kimmerer's book specifically, I mean, just the title is about that connection and crossover of how to marry those two ways of seeing the world, right? I mean, that's the, the, the image of braiding sweetgrass is this weaving of, of multiple ways of seeing the words, world and that they're not necessarily polarities, but that they can actually be intertwined. And you, you, when you do that, when you don't just exclude one or the other, that you, you find the, the common meaning beneath the two, how they, once they're woven together. Um, I'm just rambling at this point. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah, Stop me anyway, <laughs> if you have anything to say. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, um, and I, I see this a lot too. I, I feel like those of us, um, whether, you know, raised in this like ex- very Christian or, uh, you know, very religious context or, or, or not. Um, but those of us in, in the West who essentially just grew up in this civilization in this point in time, I think a lot of us, um, on on different levels, uh, just really miss having some kind of like real uh, tangible connection with the land and with the kind of spiritual life that, that comes from that connection. Um, you know, a lot of our ancestors, like for someone like me, my ancestors mostly come from Europe. Um, you know, before they came here, in you know, a few thousand years ago, they were they just lived in small villages, like farming their crops in a fairly sustainable way most of the time and had these like very rich lives that were connected with the seasons and connected with the spirits of the land. You know, they would pray to trees, they would do all these different things. Um, and I think a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of parts of our society have, uh, kind of conspired to get rid of those things and to, you know, in the past mm-hmm. demonize them, um, or even just to, to push them out in, in the marketplace of, of ideas and in doing so i think when, when i see things like biodynamics or um many of the other ways that people try to rekindle that that spiritual connection with the land and with farming with their work um i see what i see is yeah is exactly that just missing that that rich spiritual life that that um no matter where you come from in the world your ancestors used to have and that might have been one generation ago. It might have been a hundred generations ago. But you know, all of us have that history. Um, yeah. And so I think that's you know w- when we're thinking about how to approach land respectfully with all the complexities of you know for someone like me living as a settler in you know a, like on a colonized continent, um, you know it's it can be difficult to to kind of s- find how to get back to you know how, how to find a way to reintegrate some of those things into your life. Um, without it being appropriative or um, or misguided, um, mm. so yeah, I, I see a lot of people kind of grappling with those questions and doing really interesting things with it too. Uh, so I've really enjoyed kind of seeing, um, yeah, what what people kind of come up with. Yeah, I, and I, I I know we just dove right into the deep end, which I love. <laughs> <laughs> I want to pull back, and I, I hope it's obvious when talking about wine that plants and trees are where wine comes from and that's why this is an important discussion to have for me on this podcast um but you're you are can you talk a little bit more about some of the things that you are doing personally not with you know not for your your day job or whatever but that you are playing around with with shelterwood forest and why why it's named that and, and what you're doing there in philly in your front yard and and stuff like that 
Yeah, so I talked a little bit earlier about um, some of the more southern native species that uh, I've been bringing up to Pennsylvania. Um, and just being careful that none of them have invasive qualities, but um, just thinking about what, what might do well here, um, given a different climate in 50 or 100 years. Um, but yeah, besides that, so in my yard in Philly, um, I'm, I just planted out a bunch of uh, winter rye, winter barley, winter wheat. Um, you know, I gathered a lot of different old heirlooms and land races and, uh, and have just kind of mixed them together to try to breed something like a more diverse population that more closely replicates the kind of, of um, really resilient uh, crop populations that, that have traditionally been used around the world. And instead of just like a single um, just monoculture of like one hybrid wheat, which, you know, usually is what, what farmers grow. Um, right. Yeah. And besides that, I planted a, a very small vineyard of about 20 vines in my front yard um, with the, uh, the goal to kind of find like what, <laughs> what can I actually grow here without spraying? Um, and so it's all hybrids and just straight native species. And um, uh, yeah, here in the mid Atlantic, it's, I, I don't know if I've ever seen more than a handful of, of grapes that weren't just riddled with disease. Um, it's only like the really wild ones think like, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I brought up a muscadine here, uh, which isn't native here and it's more native to the Southeast, but, um, but it's doing great here and it's the most disease free thing I grow. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'd love to, um, is it, is it stanky? It, it is, it, it is a little stanky. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but every time I bite into one, I just try to remember how, how healthy it is for me. And, <laughs> and I know there are people down South who know how to actually work with the stank, but I'm, I'm not there yet. Um, no, I, I, I just recently heard about that. Yeah. Where it's like, you, you haven't, if you think Foxy is that sort of grape, <laughs> grape soda flavor, then you haven't really smelled Foxy. You haven't smelled <laughs> yeah, <a> Foxy <laughs> muscadine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it, it's funny. I I wondered about that. But but clearly, it's a great place to start if if you're breeding grapes, right? Like it shows its total resilience to all these things. If you keep that and breed out the stank and breed in some you know delicious aromas and flavors, perhaps and then you might have gold right there. You know, that's a, it's a great starting place for a breeding program, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, um, I've been really lucky to be part of this, uh, this Google listserv called great breeders. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's, uh, it's, well, no, I want to become, it is, it is <laughs> phenomenal. It is all these professional and, uh, hobbyist great breeders from around the country, um, who just kind of compare notes and, um, it's, is absolutely like amazing what they talk about. And I, I've learned more just in a few months of, of reading through um, those conversations there than, than I have anywhere else. Um, so one of the people I learned about there is, is this gentleman who unfortunately passed away recently, um, Bob Zender down in Florida, who, uh, mm. who also was, you know, he was, he spent decades creating this uh, no spray vineyard in again one of the worst places to grow grapes right um but right. he hybrid he created these hybrids that produce like incredible quality um and with without the need for sprays um which is something that um is almost unheard of you know i know there's um kessel ring vineyards out uh in the midwest and uh maybe one or two other people but i think that that to me is the most exciting uh work that's happening with with grape breeding yeah i mean so 
it's unfortunate that it's rare that people are using sprays because I think it's only rare in the last hundred years. You know what I mean? Like it, it was never like that was that was agriculture. Um, and and I want to get into that. I mean, I'm sure that maybe sulfur is a little older than that, but in terms of like fungicides and all these things that you know are now available on the market, um, pesticides of massive kinds and herbicides, like that's you know less than a hundred years. You know, this is like post World War II stuff, and it's you know like so there is a way to do this right and <laughs> there's a way to do it without sprays and i and i just feel like we've reached that point where this experiment with chemistry is has proven to be a, a, a massive failure in terms of human health and environmental health and and i think the only objective that everybody in agriculture should have is a no spray whatever it is that they're doing you know like wherever you are if it has to be sprayed don't grow it you know grow the next thing i mean spray it until you bred it you know, used it as a breeding tool to breed with something that doesn't need to be sprayed and then stop, you know, the the goal should be to get off sprays. This is at least my very hardcore, um, you know, like I, I but this is the, my message for everybody in wine specifically, like just, you know, don't plant it if it needs to be sprayed there. And if it does need to be sprayed, then, then don't plant it. <laughs> I'm just repeating that. Um, <clears throat> and I know that's like a hard line because you know, even even people who are growing organically are spraying tons of stuff. Um, and that's, you know, I think that would be a step in the right direction for the most part. But I, I don't think that copper is any better for the environment than some of the fungicides that are chemical and synthetic um, and, and could be worse potentially, depending on how often you have to use it since it isn't systemic and some of those fungicides are and only need to be sprayed once or twice or three times a year, whereas copper needs to be reapplied and reapplied and reapplied. Um, and it's horrible for aquatic life and builds up in the soil and is toxic to lots of different life, uh, soil life and every, you know, human life and aquatic life. Um, so yeah, no spray I think is the way to go. And the fact that he's doing it in Florida shows that it's possible, um, anywhere in the U S frankly, and it just takes the time and care to breed grapes that, that are hardy in those climates and are resistant naturally. And I know there's, there's no, that is a big objective in breeding and i really appreciate you sharing that resource of of this and getting into grape breeding and this idea that you know we didn't used to need the i mean everything was no spray at one point in history and for all history was no spray up until just recently um brings me to to how why you're on this podcast in the first place why we're having this conversation is i I'm doing research about vines and trees and vitiforestry and, you know, these polycultures that include vines. And I stumbled upon this article called The Lost Forest Gardens of Europe. And this article is one of the most deeply researched things I've found online um, with multiple sources from multiple languages and time periods. And you are its author. <laughs> and it's on the Shelterwood Forest Farm blog um and can you talk about that article and and what went into writing that why you wrote that what led you to to that yeah um yeah so kind of in line with what we were talking about earlier um for for years i've um just been really curious about what um what was going on in in europe for all these huge span expanses of time you know, every time, you know, I, I would learn about a different continent, whether it's North America or Australia or 
uh, different parts of Asia, Africa, you know, there are always these rich histories of indigenous cultures um, with these complex relationships with the land and these really innovative methods of farming. And with Europe, I think the the kind of story that we all grow up with is that, oh, it's just a lot of monocultures, just a lot of wheat fields and maybe some orchards and some cattle um, and vineyards. But um, the fact that, you know, I guess what I started to see in, in researching this is that that's actually the opposite of what most of Europe's history was like. You know, even up until the 1950s, something like 97 to 98% of all the farms in, in Italy were these incredibly, incredibly diverse um, perennial polycultures where you have uh, grapes, wine grapes growing up trees that are, uh, whose branches are cut for fodder for the livestock. And in between these rows of trees and grapes, you know, there's all these um, fields of wheat, corn, beans, uh, pasture, um, and so on a single farm, you have a harvest of staple crops, uh, specialty items like wine, um, meat, milk, livestock, um, and even you know in in the first half of the twentieth century, over half of the domestic wood production, the the, the, the timber production in in all of Italy was coming from these farms. So not only were these you know farms producing ostensibly just food, but as a byproduct. They're supplying over half of the country's timber, uh, which is absolutely incredible. Um, and so, yeah, for for most of Europe's history, there have been these like very complex and diverse agricultural systems that have been predominantly done by uh, peasants and indigenous people and um, folks who frequently get um, either removed or left out of history. And mm. it's only in the past. Um, century or two, and particularly the last 70 years, that you start to see the disappearance of those systems really uh, accelerate. Um, and there's still some examples of them left, which is even more incredible when you think about it. Um, you know, there's, there's places where they have the same kind of system that has been uh, grown in that region for 8,000 years. Wow. So, yeah, there's these really long traditions that, um, uh, that I think we we have a lot to learn from, and especially when thinking about sustainability, climate change, um, or any of these like big buzzwords or really, frankly, important things, um, they were dealing with all the same things, right? The climate has changed dramatically in the last 8,000 years um, yeah. in a variety of directions. You know, there's people have been coping with a lot of the same things that we cope with today, and these really diverse farming systems have kind of stood the test through time through all of it. And so there's there's definitely something to to learn from there, I think. And do we know why they've stood the test of time? Like, what are why, why have they been successful? Yeah, the uh, so in your episode with with Mark Shepard, uh, he talked about how uh, his farm is essentially just looking at what the local ecosystem for him looks like, and then kind of rearranging it into something a little bit more ordered and semi domesticated. Um, and that's essentially like what makes this work. Um, you know, <laughs> if you have, it's, it's already happening there naturally, like it's already successful and you're just adding or increasing its success or increasing its, you know, whatever it's doing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, you have, instead of, you know, uh, deer and bison and wolves, you have, you know, your farm dog, you've got cattle, you've got sheep, 
you know, instead of uh, wild trees with grapes growing up in them um, and meadows and fields, you have uh, those same native trees just brought out individually into a, into a wheat field and uh, planted in rows and with a uh, domesticated grape growing up them and being trellised between the trees. And so you, you have this, uh, every level of the forest or of the, you know, the local ecosystem, you have all the components of it, but it's in a way that works better for you and makes your life easier. And it's only when those things got separated and that we started to get to the kinds of systems that we see today where you have a thousand acres of wheat and you have, you know, a large orchard and you have a large vineyard and it's all these monocultures, you know, what happens yeah. when you disaggregate these things is you no longer have uh, the wheat growing underneath it. So all of a sudden you have weeds, you know, you no longer have uh, all the, like the honeybees and the, the silkworms um, in the mulberry trees. So you have different kinds of, of insect pests coming in. Uh, you don't have all these mitigating factors that, uh, that ecosystems allow for that where they have all these checks and balances that really prevent a lot of the worst kind of predations that happen, uh, all that's gone. So this monoculture is basically just naked in the wind. Um, and so these, like for instance, in, in Italy, like these systems, uh, they they resisted phylloxera up until the 20th century. You know, even when they're pulling out, you know, some of the last vines uh, from these uh, from these diverse systems in, in Umbria in, in the later half of the 20th century, they still hadn't been infected yet. Uh, so there's a lot about not just like the biology, but even just the architecture of these systems that really, uh, buffers each of the crops against, uh, a lot of the worst things out there. And it also means that if you have a bad year, you know, let's say you have just one vineyard of Syrah. If you have a bad year for that, then your whole crop is done. But if you have all these different kinds of trees, all these other crops on the ground, all these, all this, all this livestock, then you've got an insurance policy that essentially means that you're not going to go broke in a year. Um, yeah. And so what, something that does well one year might not, not do well the next, but that's okay because you have five other things that can kind of make up for it. Yeah. There's some great photos on the on your article um, that I think more than almost anything I've seen, it's sort of that, you know, you can actually see what we're talking about. Like, I, I, I just think that we, there are no examples of it currently in, in the U.S. So anybody thinking about this is like, who knows what they're thinking, what their mind's picture is. And so just one of these photos where, you know, you have these coppiced, what I meant to say here was pollarded. Pollarded means cut at about head height. Like you sort of top a tree, just chop it right around head height. And then little branches grow out around that head height area. Coppiced means cutting almost all the way down to the ground is very different. It is not what I meant. I say it here twice. I apologize. I was thinking pollarded and saying coppiced. And luckily, Max does correct me very nicely in a little bit. But I wanted to add in here uh, as you're thinking about this, as I'm trying to describe and create a picture for you, don't imagine coppicing, imagine pollarding. All right. Maple trees probably um, with, you know, the vine sort of trellised at about head height between them, draped between these, you know, spaced evenly at about, I don't know, maybe 10 feet, maybe who knows what, just making stuff up. But it's, you know, this one image, you get this idea and you see it and you see like an alley cropping system with trees that, you know, separated by rows of trees with vine that are acting as vine trellises, as well as, like you said, you know, coppicing them and using the, using as 
fodder or whatever else um and basket supplies you know weaving supplies um and then the that alley is being farmed in multiple ways whether it's hay whether it's corn whether it's wheat um annual crops or or maybe it's just grazing for animals that are in that system um it's just i guess i'm just recommending to look at the website because the images convey so much more than just trying to understand this because i think people get a sense of i don't know when i first heard about it i started discounting it and then when you see it and you're like oh no that makes total sense (laughs) um i can see how that would work and 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 is working and has worked you know and and maybe slightly smarter than uh, you know because it's a living trellis that will continually improve with age versus a dead trellis which will continually need maintenance and and uh, repair as it ages that's um, just constantly degrading with age so there's that 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 aspect of it as well um hey what led you to i mean yeah, this is deeply researched. I mean, I couldn't believe like when I started clicking out because some of these the 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 sources that you cite, I was just like really fascinated to check those out. And it's like you're finding you know old Italian texts and all kinds of stuff from deep online. <laughs> that I'm just wondering what took you to do. Like, I, I don't I imagine you didn't get paid to do this. Like, why why did you do this? Like, what is it about you that, that made you want to do this deeply researched? And you even told me that, you know, to the extent that you your Italian fell short of these texts, you just were pasting entire pages into Google Translate. So this is how you were reading some of these texts because <laughs> yeah. there weren't English versions of them. So what, what went into all that work? Uh, well, essentially, I'm just really good at Googling. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, and I think that's one of the beautiful things about living in this day and age that you can find some all this kind of information um, online pretty easily. Um, yeah, but but yeah, I think for me it was it was an attempt to um, just learn about things that I could connect with on on a personal level and to see um, you know when um, when did people get it right? You know, like when like how and how did people get it right? You know, there's so much wrong in the world right now it's so easy to get down on things and and so easy to forget just how how close we are in many cases to to the solutions and to to ways that that are much better um and where some of these places still exist you know in italy or in portugal you know, it's 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 incredible like you know that they're not you know on the cover of, of every you know newspaper when you think about like how just how vitally important some of these places are um and so for me in writing this it was it was just um like i think an attempt to like once i found just how uh rich this story was it was just an attempt to um put it out there as comprehensively as possible yeah it's it is and and it is that and it's i mean because of that it i think it's this amazing online resource um I don't know if you track analytics on it, but how's it do? Do you know? Is it just weird people like me that click and get obsessed with <laughs> with it? Yeah, but the good thing is there's a lot of weird people like us. You know, there's <laughs> it's, it's it's done well. You know, and you know, I don't make any money off this. This is not um, I'm not promoting right. anything. This is um, right. I, I just I think there's some really valuable things that have been done and are and are still done, and I would really love to see them be done by more farmers. Uh, and that yeah. that is my overriding goal in, in all of this is just to see if um, 
you know, the, our, the conversations we have about sustainability and about agriculture can be a little bit more informed by, um, yeah, by some of these practices that have truly stood the test of time. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see these ideas spread as well, which is why I do this as well. Um, this is, yeah, no, it's really, it's, it's, a, it's just, I mean, I, I could say so much good about it, but people should just read it. It's the Lost Forest Gardens of Europe. Um, and if you just Google that, you should find it. It's pretty much, I don't know, I think that's, that should do it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, <laughs> um, yeah, and going back to what, what we are talking about a little bit earlier uh, with, with no spray, you know, I'm I'm also somebody who very you know strongly believes in in a future without without any kinds of sprays. And yeah. uh, as somebody who doesn't have like a stake in the game, it's very easy, I think, for me to to have yeah, an opinion. Yeah. But it's um, yeah. but I think one of the really wonderful things about um, learning about these systems is uh, is seeing that you know once you give up sprays, you can gain so much more, right? Because yeah. if you're spraying stuff all the time then you can't harvest necessarily like the fruit that's growing on the tree that the grape is trellised on you can't you know plant all these other crops and have animals go through there you can't harvest mushrooms you can't you know you lose so many different kinds of yields that you can get out of a grape vineyard or a grape agricultural system uh when when you're spraying and, and once that once that leaves then it opens up all these possibilities um yeah, not, and i think not to mention you no sorry go ahead I was just going to say, not to mention you lose the costs of all those inputs as well. Yeah. Like where you, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, no, no. That's, that, that was it. Um, but yeah, that, that's exactly it. So I think there's, there's a, a lot to look forward to in, in giving up these things as well. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, well, I mean, we could go on. It seems like, you know, yeah, like you, like you, and just with the two of us talking about it, I guess we have to be careful that we're not too farmers with, you know, a hundred acres at stake advising people to um, <laughs> go, go, you know, go for it. Yeah. But, but uh, I mean, I, I think that is, you, you know, there is a little bit of, of that in me too, where it's like, I, I intend to do that and I plan to do that. And I, and I, I think I see the principles and I want to spread the principles from other people that know better than I do. And it seems like, you know, like that was the objective of that Mark Shepard thing was, you know, I, I knew that this was somebody who was doing it over on over a hundred acres and, and can talk about it from that perspective of like, you know, he's, whatever 30 years into it and it's successful you know it's happening mm -hmm. and he hasn't sprayed in that entire time as well and um you know can make a living and do everything else uh from that land and has abundance and has now i i mean i just you know i it was like when i i, I interviewed tom plocker as well it was like just this light bulb went off for me i was just like you know i just could not believe like that this process and and yes it is a a risky process in terms of your the success rate of finding that new variety that hits ticks all the boxes you know that is delicious that is cold climate you know cold resistant in the winter that is uh all, you know resists all the the pest pressures in terms of you know the mildews you know all the fungal pressures and things that are endemic in your area um and you know, also makes great wine. I mean, that's, you know, it, I think I, I'm, I'm talking to another grape breeder soon and he, he's, he's like, you know, the numbers that people say are something like one in 10,000. Um, he's like, I think it's actually more than that. <laughs> um, so this can be, you know, this is a 10 to 20 year period to get a few varieties of grapes, two or three maybe varieties of grapes that are new that, that tick all those boxes or most of those boxes. Um, 
But in in the same amount of time, you know, if if many people had done that, or if if regionally there were breeders that we were all supporting to do that for us, and and it was more of this thing, and I, I know obviously there is this online forum now, the Great Breeder Forum that I now have to check out. <laughs> do you have a sense of how many people are part of that? I don't. Um, I think okay, maybe dozens, maybe a few hundred. Um, yeah, but it's one of the really great things that I've learned from just being in that group is just how easy it can be, right? If so like right. if, if you're somebody who has, you know, aspirations of breeding your own great variety, but you think, oh, it's going to be too difficult. Oh, I don't have the space or, or whatever. People have some really creative solutions to this. So there was this one gentleman, oh. I, I can't remember his name, but he, um, he would breed like thousands of grapes, you know, he, and he would uh, just do all these crosses and then he'd plant out the seeds um, into like the fence line along the highway, highways around him where he saw that vines were growing naturally and they weren't getting cut down. So he would just plant out all these like excellent vines uh, with really great genetics, then come back five years later and see what was doing really well and make selections (laughs) from that. And, (laughs) you know, there's ways to do it. Right. And even, uh, even in other areas like the, um, like knockout roses, right. Like the rose you can get at every Lowe's or Home Depot. Um, The person who bred those, he did it in his basement here in Pennsylvania. And now he's now he's a multimillionaire, you know. So there's yeah, there's a lot to be said for um, uh, just creative solutions to to breeding, and and also just you know how much how much fun it can be too. Yeah, yeah, especially if you have the right temperament for it and everything too. And it's you know I I think going back to like how how did people do no spray for millennia? Well, that's how you know they they knew you know they've been breeding and selecting. Like this is what humans have been doing, and it's only in this century that instead of breeding and selecting, we funneled all those resources into R and D for chemicals, you know, for chemical sprays and things like that. I think that was the sort of light bulb that went off for me. That was just like, man, we just basically hit the pause button on millennia of this this process of thinking of agriculture as a process, and decided that it would now become, you know a way to just protect these precious things that we all obsess over that we think we must have, even though they don't do well anymore. You know, we can't change the fact that we want this kind of tomato or that kind of corn or that kind of wheat, or, you know, it has to be the thing that we've always had that makes us comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so we now had to create an industry to make that possible so that change so that we don't have to change and it's like no let's embrace the change you know let's let's remember that change is part of the process of agriculture and it has to be embedded in that process okay it has to like agriculture has to be change and and has to be a process of change and adaption it can't be this thing of keeping it the way it is keeping the same grape varieties for the for 200 years you know and just only thinking that those are the ones that are worth drinking, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I think that's what's really interesting about it. I, I Shelterwood forest farm. Um, what, what was the, what are the, what are your values behind that? And what, what is it now currently for you? Is it? Yeah. Um, so it started out as, um, uh, at first I had the goal of, of starting, you know, a commercial farm, um, but then in 2020 with the pandemic and, uh, I think like a lot of people, a lot, a lot of things in my life got shifted around a lot of pri- other priorities kind of came into focus and, 
So I think the Shelterwood Forest Farm project for me has taken a backseat for the time being, but it's always been uh, an outlet for me to uh, kind of explore what um, just more about like what interesting folks are doing in the world of ecological restoration and, and farming. Um, and the name comes from this uh, forestry practice where you leave the, the, the largest trees in the forest uh, when, when you're going to, to clear out timber. Uh, because those are the strongest ones that that can help preserve um, the good genetic makeup of of the forest and re- repopulate it. Um, around here in Philadelphia, there's a lot of um, heritage trees, so trees that are uh, we call them pen trees here, um, and that that are older than mm. 400 years. Um, so there's trees like there's a tree in my neighborhood that was here before any Europeans were. Right there's trees that have existed here for hundreds and sometimes thousands of years that are just kind of hanging out in a park or like on the edge of, of a trail or in someone's backyard. And it's easy to kind of overlook those and to forget about them. But, you know, these trees have much like these farming systems that we've been talking about, these trees have weathered a significant amount of change in climate and landscape um, and are worth yeah. preserving and propagating from. And so I think that that same ethic kind of goes through as as um, uh, as a story or a line throughout uh, all of the different uh, areas of research that I've done and, and different projects that I'm trying out. Um, and so I think that just trying to honor what's been here for a very long time and and learn from it is uh, is the, the the goal as it stands. Yeah, I I I don't know if I mentioned I'm from Pennsylvania as well and. I always love that it's the the one state whose name uh, is about the woods, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> about the forest. Um, I, I think that's great. Uh, it's nice that you know it it seems to to breed foresters <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, people who love trees. Uh, strangely, I found a lot of them coming from Pennsylvania. I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> um, I don't know if you have ever been. Have you ever been to to Rome? Uh yeah, a few times when I was uh, when I was a little bit young, younger. Okay, there was a there's I, I discovered at the Temple of Diana, which is like a in the middle of the the Borghese Park. I, I can't even remember what it's one of the central parks of Rome. Um, but does that ring a bell at all? Uh, I don't recall. Um, it's uh, it, it, there's an inscription on it in Latin that's um, what is it? It's uh, Silvarum Potent. Wait, Noctiluce Silvarum Potenti. Um, which I believe the best translation I found for it means to the mighty nightshine of the forest. Mm. And, and I, I love great. that. I don't even know what it means. <laughs> I just love it. Uh, but yeah, I, I was I named a, a, one of our wines Noctilucence because that's the English mm. version of Noctiluce. Um, but it, it, yeah, it ties to that. And I love, I don't know. I just love what that evokes and, and, I guess if anybody has spent time in the woods at night without a flashlight or campfire, maybe would know what that means. Um, you know, would m- maybe begin to get a sense of that. But it's uh, it, it's something you know that forces you outside your comfort zone to be able to experience this magical thing that is being evoked by this ancient inscription on the Temple of Diana in Rome, because you have to go into the woods, first of all, which are forbidden, and you have to be out there at night when humans are supposed to be safe in our warm little huts and, and caves, and and you have to be without light, 
you know, uh, so that you can see the light that's out there. And there's something, you know, that the, that it re, the, the understanding of that phrase, I think, requires the sense of courage and, you know, going transgressing human you know, borders and warnings and things like that. So I think there's something really cool about that. Yeah, to your point of the, yeah, that courage, I think that's exactly in line with what we've been talking about, where, you know, people who are growing grapes now, I think, um, or even just working in the industry, like that, that kind of courage is needed to to do what what we need to do to make sure that wine persists right and that it does so in, in the in a sustainable way you know that i think that that's a really great uh idea to to keep in mind for it yeah is there a, any way that you want people uh who are listening to who want to reach out and ask you questions or or get in contact for any reason do you do you want any kind of contact information to be mentioned or do you want to send anybody to your website or oh yeah else? yeah there's a, there's a contact page on on my website and that um that goes right to my personal email um so that that's way easier than spelling my last name <laughs> <laughs> so just shelterwoodforestfarm.com that's right and and the most recent blog post is that Lost Forest Gardens of Europe post, right? Mm-hmm. If yeah. I'm not mistaken. And then there's some other good stuff on there too. Anything else you'd recommend? It's a nice uh, redwood post there in the Forest of Living Gods. Yeah, there's a lot of fun, there's a lot of fun stuff. Uh, I wrote one a couple years ago about um, actually about hybrid and native grapes, um, and it's uh, is when I first started getting into grapes. So it it might be uh, kind of old hat for people who who know a lot more about wine than i do um but it's uh but it has some some good info in it too is that the one called the future of american wine is native yep that's it i i 100 agree um <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome i also love could ants revolutionize organic pest management I don't know oh yeah this. there's there's a lot of great stuff some on good here. sleepers in there yeah <laughs> oh, man. um well, thank you for doing the work to that goes into writing these things and spreading these ideas because I know, I mean, anybody when they read your Lost Forest Gardens of Europe will see what I'm talking about. There's a ton of research. I mean, hours and hours and days of research that I'm sure went into just doing something because you really are uh, excited by these ideas and want to share them. Um, so I thank you for that. Oh yeah, and I can't take all the credit. Uh, quarantine definitely helped uh, with hey, there <laughs> giving, you me, giving me the time for that. <laughs> Boredom is our friend. Yes, uh, <laughs> trapped, being trapped inside. <laughs> is there any? Are, do you have any closing thoughts or ideas or you know just comments? Ah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I think so. This doesn't even need to go. If if you do record this, yeah, this doesn't even need to go in the final thing. But I think something. Have you ever heard of uh, Provenage? Yeah. Why have I heard of that? It's. Uh, I mean, this sounds like a winemaking technique. Oh yeah. no, it's a uh, layering. It's la- layering. Yeah, it's yeah. it's viticulture. It's when you. Yeah, we call it layering here. I've heard it called Provenage or uh, what? I forget. There's another one. There's another. There's a couple of different things for it. But it, essentially, you can create like this. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, like a, like a uh, super organism out of a, a vineyard where mm-hmm. there's a mother plant, a mother vine. And then the entire vineyard is just an extension of that one vine through the soil, like by, you know, letting it grow up and then back down through the soil and rerooting and up again and back down. And you keep branching those out through an entire vineyard system. And it's literally connected. And then, you know, in every way, um, in that, 
the whole, that whole system is a single vine, essentially a single superorganism. Yeah, that was um, when I started looking into how people trellis grapes in the past. Um, uh-huh. I was just kind of curious. Okay, if they weren't putting them in trees and they weren't putting them obviously on wire, which is pretty recent, then, then you know what were they doing? Um, and that's when I first heard about layering in Provenage, especially in different parts of France. Um, I think in Champagne, it was what they did almost entirely until uh, right. Phylloxera. Um, right. But one of the really interesting things I read about when, when researching it, um, someone gave the example in this old book from the 19th century about how this uh, German wine grower had moved to Ohio and bought this hillside and then planted uh, Catawba grapes, you know, I think a, a native grape or a native hybrid, um, and yep. then did Provenage with it. Um, and I think that's kind of, in, you know, going back to what we are talking about earlier with grape breeding, that's another area that where you know no one's really like done that to my knowledge um, since phylloxera. Like this is one of the, one of the most long lasting ways of growing grapes was just layering them into a super organism. Um, yeah, and no, everybody's just kind of like left it because you can't do that with wine grapes. But if you have a hybrid that is phylloxera resistant, I'd be, I'd be really curious to see what happens. Um, that yeah, that would be really fun. Now I will say. I do believe, and I'd, I'd have to confirm this, but last I heard, it was happening out here in California and Santa Barbara. If you have sandy enough soil in a dry enough climate, um, you can get away with, you know, not worrying about phylloxera, essentially, like it's going to be kept at bay. And and it is a long process is the one thing because, you know, it's sort of like, you're, you know, it grows exponentially because, but you have to start with, you know, a couple vines and then layer them. But each year that you layer them, you're increasing the amount of layering that you can do. So it can sort of spread exponentially over the years. But it does take years to do this, to to fill a vineyard, essentially. Um, and I love that idea of, you know, the, the I mean, I don't know. It just the idea of a, a fully connected superorganism vineyard. Um, you know, not that not that there aren't connections already happening in vineyards, uh, but that that idea is really intriguing and exciting for some reason. There's yeah, something really like, absolutely. yeah, like that uh, massive vine covering an entire hillside. Yeah. Um, and, and who and knows, like maybe it sucks, right? Like maybe, maybe it doesn't work that well, <laughs> but like, we just don't know because we right. always tried it in like 200 years and, or on, yeah. at least in a way that, you know, is, is uh, easily easy to study. And so I think that's going, going into like some of these things we've been talking about, I think, um, one of the best aspects of all this is that you don't need to have, you know, a hundred acre vineyard to, to do these things. It's actually better if you don't, yeah. because if you've got like a couple of vines in your backyard or just a like small vineyard and you have, it's not like what you're making your living on. It's just a fun hobby. It's a lot easier to plant like an apple tree in there and, and hike some grapes up into it or yeah. uh, plant wheat in, in the, you know, in the understory or barley and brew your own beer with it or, uh, do this yeah. provenage and and see if like a super organism grape is a great thing. Um, that's yeah. a lot easier when it's when it's your backyard. So you know, I yeah, think, I mean, yeah, no, that's I mean that that is it. I mean, you brought up the thing that I I didn't really put a fine enough point on, which was the quality potential from a super organism vine. Seem seems like it could be. It could, you know, you could have this multiplication of quality somehow, like because you <laughs> you know resources are being drawn or could be shuffled through an entire vineyard rather than just you know within a, a localized plant system and and the the microbe system you know essentially around it. And not that there aren't communications of microbes and things like that, but like when you literally 
have a circulatory system that runs through an entire vineyard. That's like really exciting. It seems like moving around nutrients to where they're needed. And, you know, just the sharing aspect seems like the quality of the entire vineyard would rise. Um, but like you said, we don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe it all suck. I mean, I, I think the main reasons that it's, you know, there would be downsides to it would be the, well, first of all, the 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 time for establishment but then secondly you know maybe, maybe the care is a little more difficult and 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 i wanted to follow up that was my follow-up question for you you said you discovered this when you were researching how people did things before when they weren't using trellises or trees or things like that how would this prevent this are the are these vines that are essentially running along the ground is that what they were doing because I, I mean the way i've seen it is still using trellises or some sort of like stakes or things like that where it's you know, it goes up onto a trellis wire and then comes back down into the ground and then goes back up onto a trellis wire and goes back down into the ground. But if it wasn't using a trellis, what would it look like? So it did use a trellis, but not, or at least it used stakes. Um, so traditionally okay. in France, I think they used uh, chestnut stakes. Um, okay. But I remember so reading, sort of, sorry, go ahead. So it just, it goes up and then the, the canes drape down and that's when they get tucked back in, you know, some of those canes that drape down get tucked into the ground and then, right. you know, and then the throw rest, them up yeah. another stake. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Sorry. F yeah. Please finish your thought. Oh yeah. No. Um, just that like, this was one of um, maybe like half a dozen different ways that people trellised grapes for thousands of years. Right. Like I remember reading this study. Um, they were looking at like the first viticulture in uh, like uh, in Southern France, you know, when, when, these like Near Eastern uh, grape varieties were first brought in, started to mix with like the local genetics and whatnot. Um, and it was just like kind of an overview of the archaeology of these vineyards. And what they're finding was that a, they were they were using a lot of different trellising techniques, right? They were going up the tree. Um, they were uh, doing the provenage, you know, superorganism thing. They were just planting them next to a stake individually. Um, so people have been experimenting and not, not just experimenting, but practicing um a number of different uh you know grape growing techniques for thousands of years and what we have around us today is a pretty like thin slice of the entire circle of like possibilities um right. and revisiting like what what people what really worked for people for for a very long time i think is uh is not just important but also a lot of fun you know yeah that's a really good point yeah i mean I I just hearken back to the the trees as trellises again because I mean vines clearly evolved to to climb trees. I mean that's their symbiotic natural relationship. And I just think over millions of years that they existed with trees, there must be some really beneficial aspects uh that that aren't that are happening in the soil i guess is what i'm getting at that that you know like removing the vine from the tree i think can't like can't be as good for the vine as keeping it with the tree like it just you know it's like i don't know i mean i, I could be wrong about that obviously you know we, we can we can experiment and find out but this is this is one of the experiences experiments i want to do i want to do uh, a tree trellis vineyard side by side like a block of all the same kind of vines trellised side by side with uh with a normal traditional trellis and then make wine exactly the same way from them and see what happens you know see if there are quality differences because it, i don't know you know it just is like it would be so weird to me 
if there wasn't a, a quality benefit from being with the partner that they've had their entire existence until mm-hmm. the modern era. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It just would be so weird if that didn't help them in some way. And um, people have been commenting on that for, for a very long time. I mean, you go back to Roman writers like uh, Pliny the Elder, I think. He was writing about how um, the best grapes, you know, again, the Roman Empire, they had a number of different trellising systems, but he was saying the best grapes come from the ones up in trees and, you know, was, and even de- yeah. delineated, you know, which level of, you know, the, the tree trellis, like the grapes were, were best on. Uh, right. And even uh, TV Munson, like the great American viticulturist, he, in uh, one of his books, he, he has this very quick line where he talks about seeing a, a grape grow up into a tree and uh, how it was just totally free of disease, right? Just something about like that right. microclimate or, or that relationship with the tree made made that grapevine um more resistant than than others uh, of of the same genetics nearby Um, this is other research that i'm finding as well that they're doing they're sort of doing vineyards uh, as alley crop systems between trees uh, between tree rows and they're finding that these are getting less mildew pressure as well which is completely counterintuitive right like you're creating more shade you're creating you know like more still air less you know less breeze like more yeah, all the things that we think of as in conducive to the mildews um are actually they're finding that it's decreasing now this is like you know this hasn't been studied extensively and there's you know very little data but there's because there's very little people doing it scientifically you know it's um but you know the the initial places that are trying this and getting data are finding some really interesting things it's uh yeah like counterintuitive things and and again like you said it, to me or or you know not just quality in terms of that but hardiness it makes sense that you're they're getting benefits that we aren't aware of yet from doing that but i don't know yeah and with I mean, um it, oh sorry go ahead no i mean i've heard old texts as well where I've heard the opposite where they, you know, they, they stopped doing it because of that. You know, once they discovered that they could have it on a, a trellis that wasn't in a tree, um, you know, I mean, who knows, you know, <laughs> like, I, th- I think we have to retest all these things because so many of these things are like, um, you know, you, you don't like, like even Pliny the Elder, was he, did, was he comparing those grapes and trees to these high density, like trellised vineyards that are like, bonsai basically in napa valley or you know what i mean right, like yeah. uh, you know what i mean like is it is it the modern trellising that he was comparing it to and maybe those do give better quality for some reason mm-hmm. you know what i mean like i you know I, I would love these things to be done again just to get uh yeah but i think it there's enough there to warrant revisiting them i guess is what i'm saying what and what you're saying sounds like as well absolutely yeah and i think especially here in north america we have a really special opportunity with this kind of thing um, because we, we already know like the really diverse palette of trees that were paired or, or, or married to vines in Europe. And they were right. you know, half the time it was like fruit trees, uh, cultivated ones. Half the time it was just native trees that, you know, you pull out of right. the forest. Right. So it's uh, when you bring native plants into an agricultural system, you, there's a lot more biodiversity there too, that frequently is, is beneficial. Um, yeah. And here in North America, we have completely different palettes of, of trees, right? Nothing is native here that, that is native over there. So, you know, what happens when you train a, a grape tree into a persimmon, right? What happens when you train a grape tree into a pecan? What happens when you train a grape tree into any of, you know, the whatever is growing in your bioregion? Um, yeah. 
you know, there's so many opportunities to see like what actually works here and how can um, the tree that I plant next to this vine actually serve me in different ways. Like, do I want to make persimmon brandy now? Right. Or do I want to uh, use this as to, you know, use this different kind of wood to help age uh, the final product. Um, And yeah, I'd be really curious to see what, uh, what people come up with. And that's, you know, that's why work like that, you know, Mark Shepard and and others like him are doing is, is really interesting to me. You know, it's, there's a lot of potential there. Well, and I don't know if you've thought through this um, as, as, as in as much detail as I have, because I'm actually, I really am maybe a year away from implementing this. Um, Maybe, maybe two years, but we'll see, you know, I mean, a few things have to fall into place, but maybe on a large enough scale where it, where it's studyable. Um, I, I can't get away from the idea that like, if it's going to be, and maybe I shouldn't think about this, like Mark clearly doesn't care too much about these commercial demands in terms of, well, I think he does. I mean, you have to have, it has to be harvestable, you know what I mean? So you can't have the, the vine doing what it naturally would do, which is climb to the top of a 40 foot tree. You know what I mean? Like you just like harvesting that way is dangerous. It's time consuming it's labor intensive it, it could never and you know what I, I was just about to say it could never scale but like maybe scaling shouldn't be our objective at this point in history <laughs> you know what i mean like that's kind of been part of our problem um so i i mean maybe i should take that back but i but i guess i say it because i want it to be something that could be an alternative to you know at least to attempt to an alternative to our current production of things to to as closely as possible uh, while being a much more ecologically sound and beneficial solution and so that's why I'm, I'm i care about the how the ease of harvest the scalability of it and so that's why i i, I mean what i've landed on, and also just you know i i do think there is a competition for ripening for sunlight you know there there is absolutely a, i mean i see the vines in the east coast growing in the trees and you know there's like those vines have to grow really really high because the canopy closes and they you know for them to get any light at all like they have to get way up there and that competition is real and and i think if you want ripe grapes that taste delicious and it's not just about you know propagating the seeds that just barely need to ripen enough for a a bird to eat them and fly away and poop them somewhere else um, if you really want ripe, delicious, you know, winemaking grapes, the only thing that I can think of are, are, is coppicing. Again, I mean pollarding here um, to as a way to maintain these, and then that sort of eliminates, in a way, the the secondary food food crop for these trees because, uh, or or maybe some form of espalier where you're you know you're keeping it at a certain height and and then you are training vine canes between tree branches and each one, you know, so you'll have a fruiting grape cane and then a fruiting apple branch kind of thing. And then, you know, alternating down the line, you know, in an espalier sort of section, I could see that. I mean, a lot of work to that, but totally possible maybe. But I think you need, you need them to be at the same height so that the sun hits them evenly, I guess, is what, it, what I'm trying to get to. And I've really thought about different ways of doing this. I don't know if you've considered any of this at all, but I'm just throwing these ideas out there as, as things that I'm thinking about. Well, in, uh, in Europe, they, there's actually, I'm, I'm always surprised at new ways that I'm seeing 
or not new ways, okay. but I mean, uh, old ways that, that uh, people were doing things. Um, you know, in some, if you look at paintings and uh, prints and even into the 19th century, into the 19th century uh, photographs of different regions in, in Italy, the entire landscape was, was just lined with trees that had uh, grapes draping beneath, uh, between them. So I think yeah. that it definitely is something that that's scalable and not in the same intensive way as you know, you, you won't get the same yield out of like uh, a densely planted block of grapes. But um, in terms of a comprehensive agricultural system, it, it absolutely is scalable. Um, okay. You know, accounts from the 17th century of like French or German travelers in, uh, you know, around Naples, like they talk about every road they would go down uh, on each side of the road are just all these tall trees with grapes uh, between them um, and then wheat underneath. Um, and in terms of, uh, excuse me, like, uh, yeah, like you're bringing up some really good points about um, like the height of the trees and trellising them. And, and um, from, from what I've seen, at least from uh, different illustrations uh, of different ages is like, there was uh, maybe even like a dozen or two dozen different ways to actually train the grapevine into the tree you know there was they would train one or they train two and then they'd tie them together or you know let them go different directions like there's all kinds of different ways and um on on actually like the on on the article um on my website um i think one of the slideshows is actually a number of those different illustrations of of different methods for training yes um and so I've always really wanted to kind of experiment with those and see like, Oh, what, what works well for what trees, you know, I, I think, right. um, and which grapes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, so, you know, some of the old paintings you see, they're training grapes in these like 80 foot tall trees and then very sketchily <laughs> climbing a very rickety tall ladder to get to them. And right. you know, that, <laughs> that's not really scalable, right? That's not, you know, really something that you want to do. Um, right. Send little Johnny up. <laughs> <laughs> He's expendable. <laughs> but, you know, there's also, there's so many different small trees that don't cast a lot of shade that have all these other benefits um, that can be used instead. So you, you can keep the the vines um, at, you know, harvestable height for just a normal human being, but, uh, but still right. keep them, you know, a little bit off the ground. Mm-hmm. So potentially even have, you know, small livestock underneath them and not, not risk uh, them getting eaten. Um, right. That's, that's the other advantage if you're growing them. Yeah. Right. At, at head height and above, uh, then you've got, you know, sheep, you've got pigs, chickens, geese, like the whole range, except for maybe, maybe cows, you know, but I mean, yeah, uh, cows would probably eat, you know, something at my head height for sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> unless they were short cows, you can breed short cows. I know people are doing that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean that's that is the advantage, and that's I mean my vision as well is it would be it, yeah it, it's it's meant to contain you know to have year round grazing. So it's like um, you know doing what Kelly Mulville is doing at Piscinus Ranch, but where his his trellis is made of trees rather than than trellis, um, and and so you've got you know this mul- like just a living it's a it's a it's a vine forest a wine forest is mm. what I want to build essentially. Um, that that allows for year-round grazing uh, of you know also farm animals that are uh, uh, you know second third fourth fifth crops or whatever as well as you know maybe and maybe that's in part I mean it depends on how much space you have you know maybe you have some of your between row stuff be 
like annual crops or things like that and you don't let the you only let the the animals in there certain times a year when the crops aren't growing and maybe do that everywhere you know you're rotating you, you grow beans and then let the pigs in after you harvest the beans to you know mow down the bean plants or the sheep or whatever and vice versa you know all kinds of stuff like that um i mean the whole idea is that uh everything is adding fertility to the whole system you know you're feeding the animals and birds and you're feeding the vines and trees and that's feeding you know and shading these lower story crops that need shade from the you know our increasingly heat hot sunshine <laughs> um yeah and and i'm looking at this you're right i mean i i, I do see the slideshow now and it is really interesting to see how they're doing this um yeah i guess you could you know they're doing so what i'm seeing them do is these really long well there's multiple ways that they're doing things you're right you could you could let them go way up into the tree and then drape down where the fruiting canes are so that the fruiting canes hang down to head height even though the vine starts above that and they just sort of drape down to where you can just pick as the fruiting canes hang out from the bottom of the tree yeah there's anyway i i could describe all these but the pictures will probably do the job but i guess i could see how you wouldn't have to just coppice them all i mean potentially if you grew them far enough apart and had the vines grow long enough between them you know the the and and you know did good pruning on both of them i think it does take you know a good bit of pruning i mean a good bit of expertise in pruning in term or experimentation in pruning to get it right it seems like but um yeah i've, really... I've definitely also seen like um different on you know in different farms that still exist there um uh, like doing these practices i i've definitely also seen them do uh like pollarding um and okay, uh, yeah. and Especially with things like oh poppers. yeah, I said coppicing. I meant pollarding. That's what I meant. Sorry. And and for those who don't know, like the difference is, you know, coppicing is where you cut the tree or the shrub at essentially at, at soil level, and pollarding right. is where you leave the main trunk and then kind of cut it up at the top. Um, and so that that's like you're saying, that's one really great way of reducing height and also getting a yield at the same time. Because especially if it's some like one of the the fodder trees, which a lot of trees are, uh, you know, a tree that uh, livestock would like to eat then you know every time you prune it you're just pruning food uh food for your uh for your sheep um right or or you yeah, know that's... sticks for the fireplace or or you know for basket making or or whatever yeah or like uh you know uh wood ch- you know something that can be chipped and used to inoculate with mushroom spawn um that kind of thing where it's you've, you've created this other yeah yeah exactly another product source um yeah sorry pollarding <laughs> yeah i mean and the advantage is that's yeah that gives you all these little little things uh versus like pruning a a tree where you know but you you also don't have to you know you it keeps it at the height that you want the trellis this quote-unquote trellis to be that you want Mm -hmm. the grapevines to be so you can you know like that's what i'm saying if you pollard right at head height that's like essentially where your your grow your your grow head is for your vine um training between those pollarded trees yeah um man well i could continue to talk for a long time (laughs) (laughs) it's been great uh thank you really appreciate it um and again thanks for all the the work that you did on this because it's finding all these things from all over the internet you know saves people a lot of time and puts it all into a, a cohesive and you know i think a really strong argument a really like unified and historically 
you know, you, we see the flow from history to the present and how these could be implemented. Oh, I know the question I wanted to ask you. Where can somebody go? Where have you seen some really good examples of these? Or do you, or where do you know that people could go to see this in real life, like see some of these historic polyculture farms that have, you know, spe- specifically like vines and trees, but the yeah. whole systems. So there's a couple places in, um, so historically, uh, different variations of the system were concentrated in the Po Valley and um, near Venice and Tuscany, Umbria, and then around Naples and in Sicily. And a couple other places are around the Mediterranean as well, but those were like the, the main hot spots. Um, in each, each spot, each area had its own kind of variation on it. Um, so I know that there's still um, like a, uh, I think it's called Vigneto Storico di Baver. It's like a, a I haven't been there, but I've read about it. Um, it's an historic vineyard, uh, a little bit north of Venice, and okay. they a lot of the um, a lot of the photographs uh, on on my article were taken from a document that was written about that that place um, that have like living examples of it. Um, so I know there's that. I know I do know that there are a few other places around Italy that um, people who study this this practice. Um, uh, know about and, and are preserving, but I'm I'm not connected well enough uh, with them to 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 know much about them. Um, but I think uh, definitely in Sicily and southern Italy too, um, you might have more luck finding this kind of thing. And there, it it also oh. can get like more um, disaggregated, so it might not be the same kinds of row, very clean rows of trees with vines, and then fields between them in this very ge- geometric way that you see up in. Uh, in northern Italy, down there, it's more like you'll have a terrace, and there'll be like an olive tree, and you know, a pomegranate, and then a grape, and you know, a couple grapes, and a bunch of wheat, um, and it's just part of this really complex uh, agro ecosystem that um, is a little bit less formalized, uh, at least from from what I've seen. Uh, yeah, and I, I've heard about some really interesting examples in Portugal too, but I I don't know yes. enough about like uh, how much they've survived. But at least until like the later half of the 20th century, I know. There's quite a number of different um, trellising systems being done out there. Nice. I, I really appreciate your your work there. It's uh, inspiring. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate being on your show. Yeah, this, this has been a lot of fun. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah.